You're not already seated, you can be seated. Good morning, my name is Kyle, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, like Brad said, we're doing uh, a little schedule shifting, usually we do songs followed by the sermon, I wish I could say it was for some like really nice spiritual reason, like, you know, the Puritans actually had the sermon first and then the songs after so they could respond, but in realistic uh, reality, I have a sick three-year-old and mom's out of town, so... Um, that's trying to get her out of here because she's back in the conference room all by herself with a puppy. Just kidding. She's, somebody's watching her. We are back in Exodus chapter 29, verses 1 through 46. So if you do the math real quick, that's 46 verses. That's quite a bit of content we're going to be discussing today. That length is roughly the size of like a CVS receipt if you've just purchased raisinets and a bottle of Coke. So why are we doing this? It's because a lot of the content that we're going to see in this chapter is going to be played out throughout the rest of the book, and we're going to have time to look at the individual meanings behind what types of sacrifices were made for what purpose, what all of the meaning and the symbolism behind uh, the, the clothing of the priests and those types of things in the, in the Levitical priesthood. What we want to do this morning, though, is to look at the ordination, the setting apart of Aaron and his sons to the priesthood, a kind of a 30,000-foot view, and tie that directly to um, uh, the, the church today through Jesus. Because when I say the word priest, perhaps some of you have different uh, ideas of what a priest of the priesthood is. Maybe it's uh, somebody that is specially sanctioned to perform some kind of religious ceremony. Some of you might be like, isn't that the thing in the Old Testament that was done away with, with Jesus and it doesn't really have anything to do with the church today? Well, if that was the case, if priests and priesthoods don't have anything at all to do with the New Testament church, um, then why is it that Peter speaks over us as I like to speak over us before I preach? You are chosen race, a royal priesthood. So there's something about the Christian identity that is deeply rooted in the priesthood of the Old Testament, and that's what we want to see today. What were the priests doing, or how were they called, and then uh, how does that relate to us today? You see, back at that time, a priest was a man who was chosen from one of the tribes of Israel to be a part of a community that administrated the sacrificial system of Israel. Perhaps we're all familiar with that. Priests were the only ones that were called and qualified to do so, and the rest of Israel kind of participated in worship at a distance, and we've seen that a lot in Exodus too, haven't we? To become a priest... Uh, was a very lengthy process, and that's the process we're going to see here in Exodus 29. But instead of just kind of looking at the process, because it does, frankly, it reads like an instruction manual, which it is, a set of instructions for how to ordain Aaron and his sons, uh, Brad pointed out that there's a guy named A.W. Pink who saw in this passage seven features of the ordination of Aaron that foreshadow or predate or point us forward to the life of a believer. A.W. Pink wasted no time showing the relevance of the Old Testament priesthood to the kind of living and active New Covenant or New Testament or church age priesthood to which we all belong today. So that's precisely what we're going to do. He saw seven similarities between the Old Testament priesthood and New Testament believers. And I actually think there's an additional point we're going to bring up at the very end. But what's brilliant about Pink's observation is that at every step of the way that we're going to see this morning, that a, as a priest is becoming a priest, it's always God doing the work. The priest is not doing the work. It's God doing the work. And in the same way, every step that you take as a believer in your life and salvation, God is the one who is doing the work. So let's look at this text through that lens. And for that reason, because we want to look at it kind of broadly, I've also, we're going to utilize a different translation, one that's more accessible, uh, more readable, because you know, the terminology can feel a little bit bumpy as we're, as we're going over this. So uh, you might not have the version that we're going to read from the screen, uh, but the passages will be on the televisions around us. So what was the first thing God did to call a priest to the priesthood? And the answer to that question is actually in Exodus chapter 28, verse 1. And I'll read that for us. God says to the people of Israel, get your brother Aaron. I'm sorry, he says uh, to Moses, get your brother Aaron and his sons from among the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron and his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, 
Ithamar. So the first thing that happens is that God gets Aaron. Not in the sense of like he knows Aaron, like I get you, but in the sense that he loves him. And because he loves him, he has called him, he's chosen him. This is a sense that God says, I will get Aaron. Not because of something that Aaron has done, but because of something that God wants to do through Aaron. And I think it's important to realize then, right out the chute, that Aaron did not first approach God. Instead, God, through a representative, approaches Aaron and extends an invitation, a command really, to come and to be a part of what God is doing. And didn't Jesus do the same thing with his disciples? God, the Father, through his representative, his Son, who was sent to the world, got his disciples. Walking along the Sea of Galilee, he calls Peter and Andrew. Going a little further, he finds James and John. In the Gospel of John, we're told that Jesus found Philip under a tree and said to him, follow me. These young men were not looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for them because he had a desire for them. Jesus says in a prayer, Father, I desire that they, being the disciples also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you, may, uh, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And it's that love, that very same love that the Son experienced before the foundation of the, move, the world that, that so moved God to send Jesus to his disciples, to us. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1.4 where it says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So the important detail here to notice, because Jesus goes to get, not just anybody, but those whom he loves. So I don't know if you've been told that the way to get Jesus is by impressing him. You need to do something to get his attention. Um, you can't. He's God. He's, he's not impressed with the things that we do. He created and sustained the entire cosmos. Um, I don't know if uh, you've been told that the way to get to Jesus is by commanding his attention. Um, again, you cannot. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He takes orders from no one. Um, perhaps most prevalently, we have been told that to get to Jesus, we have to beg him to love us by doing things we think will make him happy. And that is untrue too, because he already loves you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more or less. He loves you. Because salvation is not something that you initiate. It never was, it's not now, and it never will be. God is always the one who calls because he is the one who always loved. And like Aaron, because God loves, he gets you through Jesus. He comes to you where you are in the gospel by his spirit through faith and says, just as he did 2,000 years ago to his first disciples, follow me, follow me. God gets you through his son, through his gospel to say, follow me. Well, follow me to where? We see a hint of that in where uh, Aaron was then brought. Exodus 29 verses 1 through for. This is the ceremony for, dedication, or for dedicating them as priests. Take a young bull and two rams, healthy and without defects. Use fine wheat, flour, but no yeast. Make bread and cakes mixed with oil and wafers, spread with oil. Place them in a basket and carry them along with the bull and two rams. Here's the important part. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance. Bring Aaron to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. So first... God got Aaron, then God brought Aaron. And notice to where God brought Aaron, to the entrance of the tent of meeting. Remember, this is the place where God says he's going to meet with Israel. So in effect, God got Aaron through someone so that Aaron would be brought to him. And perhaps there's no other reason for why this is than, you know, Aaron doesn't know what's expected of him or where to go. He's going to be the high priest, but he doesn't know what that looks like quite yet. But here's one thing we do know, and something that was probably very clear to Aaron at the time. Aaron cannot simply approach God on his own terms. Aaron needs to be brought before God. And so somebody needs to pursue him. You see, ours is a life filled with pursuits. There are pursuits in this world of your heart, pursuits of your soul. There is also your pursuits, our pursuits of sin, 
the moments when you are lured and enticed by your own desires, James says, to give in to the flesh, to give over to the enemy. And to say otherwise is to deny our fallenness, right? This is a point that John makes in 1 John 1.8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So we do, we pursue sin. But there's also sin's pursuit of us, right? Peter warns that we would be sober-minded and watchful. He says in 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls along like a lion seeking someone to devour. So the enemy desires to get you and bring you somewhere. And where is that? He desires to bring you to death, the language that Peter uses, to devour you. So there's all these pursuits that occur in our lives. And the enemy pursues us to get us and bring us to death. But God's pursuit is very different. And it has a very different purpose. He desires to get you and bring you not to death, but to life. And this is precisely what Peter says happens to us through Jesus. That just as God got us in Christ, so God brought us to himself through Christ. Specifically through Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to do what? that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So just as Aaron was got and brought by God, so we are got and brought by Christ through his calling and his cross. But then what happens? What happened to Aaron after he approached the tent of meeting? Verse four, again, bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and do what? wash them with water. Of all the ways that Aaron is called to the priesthood, this is probably one of the most important because to be called a priest is to be called to, a, as a qualified member of a community, in a grouping of holy men on God's behalf. But there is a problem. How can you be holy if you're a sinner? How can you be clean if you are unclean? Sinners cannot serve a holy God unless, that is, they're made clean. You see, Aaron cannot remain in his present state. To be brought before God is not necessarily favorable to us who stand in a state of sin, in uncleanliness before a holy God. It means to face judgment. So to symbolize what God is going to do to Aaron, to symbolize the cleanliness which with he is about to give to Aaron, The people are instructed to wash Aaron with water. And notice, though, God doesn't say, have Aaron wash himself. What does it say? Wash him. So that Aaron is not the one that is washing, but he is the one who is being washed of uncleanliness. And so, too, are we washed by Christ. Paul says, he saved us, not because of works, done by us in righteousness, not in our washing of ourselves, but according to his own worship or mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So in the same way that God got us and brought us to him through Jesus without our efforts, so God saves us by his efforts and not ours. Not because of works done by us, Paul says. We bring nothing to God but empty hands so that when it's all said and done and our hands are filled, when people ask, where did you get that? We have to say him and that God alone gets the glory. This is demonstrated to us in the washing of regeneration, this language that Paul uses, this kind of duality of being washed in the blood of Christ and then that symbol of our Uh, justification, our forgiveness of sins in the washing of baptism. Because even that is not a work that we are doing, but a work being done to us. I mean, think about the symbolism of baptism. When we do baptism of adults fully immersed underwater, it's kind of a morbid thought, but it's a very important one. What if one Sunday we were doing a baptism and I put the person in the water and I just left them there? And I looked at my watch and you all begin to get nervous. And the person's not coming up, okay? 
um, what would happen if they stayed under there? They would die. Because we don't have gills. We cannot breathe underwater. We like to be there temporarily. Now, think about what does that water represent but death. And if an object of baptism, somebody who is being baptized goes underwater into death and stays there, the only power that can bring them out is what? Think about baptism. What's happening to that person? They're being lifted up, not by their own power, but by a strong arm. Not mine. This is weak. But you see, you see the, 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 the analogy here? God the Father's strong, mighty arm pulls us out of death. Okay? That's the importance of washing here. And that's why it's also important to remember this is not something we are doing. We are helpless in our state of sin. And like Aaron, whose washing symbolized his cleanliness to stand before God, we are washed in the blood of Christ. And symbolized, or we symbolize that through the washing in the waters of baptism. Because it's both a declaration of what has been uh, made true of us, that we have been declared righteous and cleansed of sin, but also something that we remind ourselves of, an object lesson of what God has done for us, that we have received forgiveness. But that forgiveness is not the beginning or the end. Forgiveness is just the beginning. It's the beginning of a new life. This is what it means to be born again. And this is foreshadowed, we see, in what happens to Aaron after he is washed. So the instructions continue in verses 5 through 9. Then take the vestments and dress Aaron in the tunic, the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, or the breastpiece, belting the ephod on him with the embroidered waistband. Set the turban on his head and place the crown on the turban. Then take the anointing oil and pour it on his head, anointing him. Then bring his sons, put tunics on them, and gird them with sashes, both Aaron and his sons, and set hats on them. Their priesthood is upheld by law and is permanent. What's happening here now? So far, God has uh, got Aaron and brought him to his presence. Then he washed him from his uncleanliness. And now he's being clothed. Not with his own clothing. Did you notice that? God didn't say, hey, give Aaron and his sons a heads up. Bring Sunday's best. We're going to do a little washing thing. And then they're going to have to put on their own clothes. Nope. Not what he says. He says, you, the community, you are going to clothe them. This is something, again, happening happening to them from head to toe. He has clothes that are foreign to him, that are alien to him, that are not his own, that he did not fabricate, that were made by someone else and are now given to him. Does that sound familiar? Because so it is with us that God gets us and he brings us to himself through Christ. He forgiveness, forgives us by washing us in his blood, but that's not where it ends because then we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are clothed in his good works. Christ's righteousness on the believer is foreign to us. It's not ours. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it, and yet it is given to us anyway for the purpose of now being able to pursue a life of holiness. You see, before, we, we talked about life is full of pursuits, right? Before we pursued sin, but now being clothed in righteousness, we ought to pursue holiness. Now, I know when I say we ought to pursue holiness, um, that might conjure up all sorts of images for us. Some people think holy, that, that you, know, you should pursue holiness is, is a prideful thing, okay? These are the holier-than-thou people. Um, we, we want to stay away from that, right? For others, holiness is maybe like a church movement, a charismatic movement, um, and it's specific to just kind of like one type of church. Still others, they might find the whole concept of holiness a bit stale, a little passe, old-fashioned, um, not really relevant to our diverse and progressive culture today? What does holiness have to do with us? You know, long ago, holiness was especially associated with specifically holy men, right? In the uh, New Testament, in the Gospels, scribes and Pharisees were considered the most holy people in Jesus' day. In other words, back then, holiness was a class of people. To be holy was to be engaged completely in this pursuit. But the idea of holiness is actually deeply rooted in Scripture for all of God's people, not just a specific class. 
It means to be set apart. That's what holy means. And it's commonly used as the opposite of immoral or immorality or sin or spiritual uncleanliness. A holy life, then, is one where you have, in Paul's words, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Uh, and, and this is possible because sin no longer has the same power over you as it once did, he says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. He doesn't say now sin has some dominion over you. No, sin has no power, no authority, no say over you anymore since you are not under the law, but you are under grace. And sin should no longer have the same kind of appeal that it does to us as it once did, which is why he can tell Timothy, flee youthful passions. For what reason? So that you can pursue righteousness. Again, life's full of pursuits. We're either pursuing sinfulness or righteousness. Paul says it a different way. Put on your new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So now we're starting to see not only why God saves, why God calls us, but also, uh, I'm sorry, we're not, we're not only seeing how God saves or how God calls us, but why he does so. We are got, brought, washed, and clothed by God for a purpose, which is glorifying him in our life's pursuit of holiness, which is essentially modeled in the priestly duties that we're going to see in Aaron's life. So why is this so difficult for us? this pursuit of holiness? I think there's two main reasons. Uh, one is kind of more specific to churches like ours that have uh, an appreciation for reformed doctrines of grace. We think that the pursuit of holiness is a work. And we stay away from works because we don't want to self-justify and upset God. Okay, so the pursuit of holiness, if that's a work, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to stay away. Second is uh, all Christians are susceptible to it, and it's just that we don't take sin seriously enough. So for that first reason, um, let's ask the question, can pursuing holiness be a work? Uh, the answer is yes. Of course it can. And look at the Pharisees. Look at the scribes. Jesus constantly criticized them, called them to repentance because they were pursuing holiness as a work. Famously, in Matthew 23, 23, he said to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And we go, yeah, those silly, foolish Pharisees. What do they think they were making God happy? Pinching off dill and mint and cumin and ignoring all of the more important things that God really cares about? They should have abandoned that tithing thing a long ago and threw themselves fully into justice and mercy, the weightier matters of the law. That's how we read the text, right? But is that what Jesus is saying? No. Notice that Jesus does not chastise them for tithing. He doesn't say they're wrong for tithing. He's not criticizing them even for their meticulous tithing, which to us seems ridiculous. He says... These you ought to have done. What are these? Tithing. So what's the problem? These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Do you see? These others being the bigger things that matter to God, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So the problem isn't that pursuing holiness is a work. At its core, if your heart is correctly oriented and you know why you're doing these things, to practice spiritual exercises, to act on conviction of the Holy Spirit, to abstain when the Holy Spirit prods your heart to, to read, to meditate, to memorize scripture, to evangelize, to participate in the life of the church. Um, the problem isn't doing those things. We're commanded to. The problem is thinking that God needs those things to happen for us to stay in good standing with him or to even get in good standing with him to begin with. Whether for his sake or for the sake of your own righteousness. Because again, it's not your righteousness. Christ already secured it for you and he has clothed you in it by faith. You're not earning that righteousness. It's gifted to you. And you don't need to do the works to keep the righteousness on you. God clothed you with it. So why are you doing gifts of righteousness? Because you've been given a new nature and it's what we do as people who have been reborn in faith. 
Which means, to the second point, I think we don't take sin seriously enough. And, and you know you, you, you don't take sin seriously enough if you have a, a taxonomy of sin. Taxonomy is a fun word. I mean, you take bio or AP bio in high school, and, and you learn about the taxonomy of, of animals, and there's like species and class, and those are the only two I remember, and I got a C. So, went this route. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, so taxonomy of sin. Why? Because we see diversity and we like to classify things. Human beings are category creatures, right? We like to put things in boxes and categories. And uh, we, we create taxonomies of sin, as if each sin's offense to God kind of oscillates on a spectrum between, whoa, God's really upset with that, to meh, practically benign, no biggie. We think that there are sins that may injure our relationship to God, but not break it but that there are really big sins that'll like permanently destroy our relationship with him. We think there are small sins that we are fated to wrestle with all of our life. And God understands he's gonna look the other way in the end. But in reality, in, in what we're beginning to see in Exodus and what you will see through all of the rest of the Bible, all the way to Revelation, is that even the supposedly smallest sins completely alienate us from God because God's being and his transcendence is endless, and his attributes are correlated to that endlessness. So, to offend God's sense of justice by showing partiality, or to offend God's sense of holiness by giving in to your flesh, or to offend God's sense of love by harboring hate in your heart against your neighbor, is to offend all of his justice, holiness, and love at once and endlessly, no matter how big or little the offense may seem to us. So God never looks the other way when it comes to sin. In fact, there are only two places that God will look when it comes to sin. He will look at the sinner or he will look at his son. He looks at the sinner in their sin or he looks at his son on the cross. Those are the only two places. There isn't a third avenue where God pretends your sin never happened or, you know, rationalizes it into into triviality, right? There are, however, earthly consequences for sin, right? And I think this is where we, why we, um, why we get this confused, like we're projecting ourselves onto God. Um, you know, just as speeding and Grand Theft Auto are going to have different outcomes in the courtroom, okay? Um, so holding a grudge against someone and murdering them is going to lead to different consequences on earth, aren't they? Okay, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been angry or held a grudge against somebody? Okay. Um, how many of you have murdered somebody? Okay, according to the law, hoping nobody, but according to the law of God, everyone who answered yes to the first question must answer yes to the second. This is what the Apostle John says, riffing off of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a hater. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Why? Because hate in your heart, when left unchecked and allowed to fester, will terminate on murder. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Who's a murderer? Anybody who has hate in their heart for somebody. Who's ever hated somebody? So who doesn't have eternal life? All of us, right? This is bad news. But, the point I'm trying to get at is this, and this is important if we're going to begin to take sin seriously. Earthly consequences and not divine offense oscillates along a spectrum of sin seriousness, okay? Earthly consequences do oscillate along a spectrum of seriousness. To hate somebody and to murder somebody, we treat that very differently as a society, okay? But in divine offense, to hate somebody and to murder somebody to God is categorically the exact same thing. So we can't be fooled. Simply because we excuse or rationalize or categorize sin doesn't mean all sin isn't equally offensive to God. And that any sin, even the most supposedly menial, does not have immediately and eternally a disconnecting power of us from life's true source. For, as Paul says, the wages of sin is death. 
He doesn't say the wages of some sins. He doesn't say the wages of the really big sins. He doesn't say the wages of moral, mortal, but not venial sin. He says the wages of sins, period, is death. So we shouldn't call something sin because we think it's a problem for God. Why? Be- simply because if we think something's a problem for God today, doesn't necessarily mean we're going to hold that same opinion tomorrow. We change, we're in flux, we're mutable. But God is not, he's unchanging. He is not in flux. He is immutable. God never changes. There's no shadow of variation within him. So if God calls something sin, it's because it offends him yesterday, today, and will do so forever. We take that seriously. So that's bad news. What's the good news? Sin solution. Remember how God is unfolding that answer for us through Aaron. God gets you. He brings you. He washes you. He clothes you. God gets you, moved by his love for you before the foundation of the world. God brings you before his presence to bless you and to keep you. How? By washing you in the blood of his son to cleanse you from your sins and to clothe you in his son's righteousness to enable and to empower you to pursue a life of holiness. You see, as a believer, you're not only able now to pursue holiness, but you're gifted with it, directly called to do so. You are ordained to a life of holiness. You are anointed for a life of holiness. That is the exact same thing we see happening to Aaron in the next passage. This one's a little lengthier. Verses 9 through 21. This is how you will ordain Aaron and his sons. Bring the bull to the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons will place their hands on the head of the bull. Then you will slaughter the bull in the presence of God at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Take some of the bull's blood and smear it on the horns of the altar with your finger. Pour the rest of the blood on the base of the altar. Next, take all the fat that covers the innards, fat from around the liver and the two kidneys, and burn it on the altar. But the flesh of the bull, including the hide and the dung, you will burn up outside the camp. Uh, It's an absolution offering. Then, take one of the rams, have Aaron and his sons place their hands on the head of the ram, slaughter the ram, take its blood and throw it against the altar all around, cut the ram into pieces, wash its innards and legs, then gather the pieces in the head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It's a whole burnt offering to God, a pleasant fragrance an offering by fire to God. Then, take a second ram, have Aaron and his sons place their hands on the ram's head, slaughter the ram, take some of the blood and rub it on Aaron's right earlobe and on the right uh, earlobes of his son and the thumbs of his right hands and on the toes of his big right feet. Sprinkle the rest of the blood against all sides of the altar. Then take some of the blood from, uh, that is on the altar, mix it with some of the anointing oil, splash it, on Aaron's clothes and on his sons and on their clothes so that Aaron and his clothes and his sons and his sons' clothes will be made holy. Wow. That was a lot, wasn't it? We're going to come back to what all of that means because when you start talking about sacrifices and blood and mixing it with oil and putting it from earlobe to toe, you're talking about atonement, you're talking about Jesus' sacrifice, we'll be back. But for now, we need to focus on what does it mean to be ordained? We've just seen the process of ordination for Aaron, but what does it mean even to be ordained? To be ordained means to be devoted, to be devoted by someone and to something, okay? So in other words, someone to whom you belong can devote you to something, and you yourself can be devoted to something. For Aaron, who belongs to God, God has devoted him to the priestly office, and then Aaron himself is devoted to his priestly duties. You see? So then what does it mean to be anointed? Essentially, this is a visible act that's communicating what is invisible to our eyes, namely the ordination. So that Aaron is plainly communicated to the people by this anointing by the blood and the oil, splash on my clothes, God has devoted me to the priestly duties and I am now devoted to the priesthood. So it's no surprise then 
that something so thick with meaning is going to be seen in the life of Jesus, who was also ordained and anointed. He was devoted by the Father to the world. In that very famous passage from John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. So Jesus was devoted by the Father to the world. And that Jesus himself was devoted then to the lost. Jesus says in Luke 19, today salvation has come to this house since he is also a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to save the seek, or came to seek and save the lost. Jesus has devoted himself to those who are lost. And then in response, those who are lost and then are found devote themselves to Jesus. For all that the Father gives me will come to me, Jesus says, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all those who he has given me, but raised him up in the last day. You see, just as the Father has devoted his Son to the world, and that the Son has devoted himself to the lost, God is also devoting the lost to his Son, so that the lost will be found and then become devoted to him who, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. In other words, devoted, dedicated, holistically to the pursuit of righteousness. But God never calls without equipping. When he ordains and appoints, he also provides that his people could accomplish his will. And this is what we see in the next section of Aaron's ordination, where Aaron comes before God with empty hands and God fills them. Verses 22 through 24. Take the fat from the ram and the fat tail and the fat that covers the innards, the long lobe of the liver and two kidneys and the fat on them and the right thigh. This is the ordination ram. Also take one loaf of bread, an oil cake and a wafer from the bread basket that is in the presence of God. Place all of these in the open hands of Aaron. You are equipping Aaron with a sacrifice to be made. Place all of these in the open hands of Aaron and his sons who will wave them before God, a wave offering. So Aaron's ordination, his very purpose for being got and brought and washed and clothed would not happen if God did not equip him. And it also would not happen if Aaron did not have the right posture of his hands. Did you notice that? Fill Aaron's open hands. I don't know if Aaron would have had his hands open prior to really processing and understanding what God is up to and what he's been doing. Prior to him being got and brought and washed and clothed. But something about Aaron in his confidence to stand before God is changing. Where before, if I was Aaron without being got and brought and washed and clothed, I would be standing like this. Who am I? But there's this boldness that is beginning to build within Aaron, not in confidence in his own work, but in confidence that God's presence will not destroy him because love is overpowering and overshadowing his sin. And so now he can come before God with open hands and say, fill them. Whatever it is you want me to do, I'm ready. I'm ready. The same goes for us that Jesus calls his disciples, they follow. And that many times he promised the first disciples, if I call you, I'm going to equip you. If your hands are open, I'm going to fill them. Because my father has work for you to do, he has a task for you, and I want you to be able to succeed in that task, so I'm gonna equip you. And of all the things that Jesus promised the disciples that he would equip them with, None is more important than the promise that he makes them. In John chapter 14, 15 through 17, it says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if we have a real relationship here, you're going to want to do the priestly duties that I have for you. You're going to want to pursue righteousness. And if you agree with that, then the question is, well, how am I going to do that? And here's Jesus' response. I will ask the Father, and I will give you another helper 
a permanent one. I will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, so the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And this is exactly what he did on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit filled the first disciples and has never left since. God justifies us. He calls us out of darkness into the marvelous light, doesn't he? For what purpose? He's called us out of darkness into the marvelous light. Why? To proclaim. To proclaim what? The excellencies of him who called us out of darkness. To tell ourselves and others in our pursuit of holiness, in the sharing of the gospel, look what God has done. How do we accomplish that? We don't. God does through us, by filling us like Aaron, by filling our hands, by filling our heart with the Holy Spirit, by filling our hands with spiritual tools like faith, truth, his word, prayer, meditation, and finally, by filling our hands with opportunities to serve, to proclaim, opportunities that God would desire of us to steward well. But there's an ultimate purpose for this, too. It's not that God just wants us to to pursue holiness for the sake of pursuing holiness. There's a grand reason why God gets us, brings us before him, washes us in his son's blood, clothes us in his righteousness, ordains and anoints us for his purpose, and fills our hands to accomplish his will. And that reason is sanctification. We see that in this very last and the lengthiest passage of this text. And I want you to pick up on a key word that's going to be repeated over and over and over again. Verse 25, then take from them their hands and burn them on the altar, or take them, the sacrifice is not, the, not Aaron and his sons, just to be very clear, right? Then take them, the sacrificial material, from their hands and burn them on the altar with the whole burnt offering, a pleasing fragrance before God, a gift to God. Now, Take the breast from Aaron's ordination ram and wave it before God, a wave offering. That'll be your portion. Bless the wave offering, breast, and the thigh that it was held up. These are the parts of the ordination ram that are for Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons are always to get this offering from the Israelites. The Israelites are to make this offering regularly from their peace offerings. Aaron's sacred garments are to be handed down to his descendants so that they can be ordained, or they, they can be, uh, anointed and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as a priest is to wear them for seven days and enter the tents of meeting to minister in the holy place. Take the ordination ram and boil the meat in the holy place. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons will eat the boiled ram and the bread that is in the basket. Atoned by these offerings, ordained and hallowed by them, they are the only ones who are to eat them. No outsiders can eat them. They're holy. Anything from the ordination ram and from the bread that is left over until morning you are to burn up. Don't eat it. It's holy. Are you noticing the, what's the word? Lengthy instructions here, but what's the word that's pulsating to us right now? Holy. Do everything for the ordination of Aaron and his sons exactly as I've commanded you throughout the seven days. Offer a bull as an absolution offering for atonement each day. Offer it on the altar when you make the atonement for it. Anoint it and hallow it. Make make atonement for the altar and hallow it for seven days. By the way, hallowed, holy, synonymous. The altar will become soaked in holiness. Anyone who so much as touches the altar will become holy. Fascinating, right? This is what you are to offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each and every day. One lamb in the morning and the second in the evening. The sacrifice of the first lamb. Offer two quarts of fine flour with a quart of virgin olive oil plus a quart of wine for drink offering. The sacrifice of the second lamb, the one at the evening, is also to be accompanied by the same grain offering and drink offering of the morning sacrifice to give pleasing fragrance a gift to God. This is to be a regular, daily, whole burnt offering before God, generation after generation, sacrificed at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That's where I'll meet you. That's where I'll speak to you. That's where I'll meet the Israelites, at the place made holy by my glory. I'll make the tent of meeting and the altar holy. I'll make Aaron and his sons holy in order to serve me as priests. I'll move in and live with the Israelites. I'll be their God. 
they'll realize that I'm their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt so that I can live with them. I'm God. I am God. You're God. Okay. A long section, very detailed, I know. There's a very important pattern that has developed here. Well, God instructs Israel on what to do for Aaron's sanctification, who is it the one that ultimately makes Aaron holy? Who is the one that actually sanctifies Aaron? I, this is God speaking, I will make Aaron and his sons holy. For what purpose? In order that they may serve me. So sanctification is a work by God and for God. God makes Aaron holy so that Aaron can glorify God and no one else. And so it is with us. We are declared righteous by faith in Christ, in his death and resurrection, and in confessing his lordship over our lives. This is what the Bible calls justification, to declare under Christ's work that we are as if we had never sinned. And then we are made holy. We do not make ourselves holy. What has Aaron done so far? He has been gotten, brought, he's been washed, he's been clothed, he's been ordained and anointed. Everything is happening to him. God finally says it in black and white. I'll make him holy. We are made holy. We do not make ourselves holy. How? By the power of his Holy Spirit and his word. In fact, that is God's ultimate goal for you. This is his will for you in your life. As a pastor, one of the most common questions I get is, what is God's will for my life? What does he want from me? What, what does he want me to do? I've got these these decisions, this fork in the road, I'm supposed to go left or right. Help me discern what God's will is for me. And if you've asked me that question before, I've given you a frustratingly frank and short answer. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, so that's great, but which college should I go to? God cares about your sanctification. Well, what does my sanctification have to do anything with which college I go to? Everything. Okay, well then what woman does he want me to marry? Come back. He wants you sanctified. I know, but I've got the... What does that have to do with my sanctification? Everything. God wants you sanctified. Everything else in life is details. This is the will of God, your sanctification. How exactly does God do it? through our new covenant priestly duties as a community of God's new priests and as individual priests glorifying God in this very church. You see, this is the point that I want to add to Pink's observation. His seven steps, actually there's an eighth that we have been focusing on how God calls priests, individuals. But was Aaron first called as an individual or was he called along with a community? And the answer we know from the grand narrative of Exodus is that he was first called from Egypt with his community, and then he was called as an individual to serve a specific purpose. This is why Peter says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are being sanctified together as a community. Are there persons within people? Of course. But if we lose sight on the fact that we're in this together and that God is saving for himself a people, a priesthood, then we lose sight of the fact that we're in this sanctification uh, journey together. Hasn't God done this for us at Mars Hill Church? Got us out of slavery of sin. Brought us before his holy presence washed us in the blood of Christ, clothed us in his righteousness, ordained and anointed us to devotion to his son and his son's mission, and filled us with his spirit and filled our hands with tools to steward our callings well. If you believe that he's done that for us and that he's done that for you, then you must believe that he's going to sanctify us and he's going to sanctify you through it all too. That's the promise he has made us. Let us realize that promise as a church. Let us attend to our priestly duties well. Our new covenant priestly duties as a priesthood, a community, supporting and living missionally, 
and as individual priests exploring and enjoying spiritual exercises. No, we're not going to do the things that we see here in chapter 9, like bake cakes and wave them as wave offerings and those types of things. But doesn't Paul tell us that we celebrate with a new bread? In 1 Corinthians 5, 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread. And what does he identify this? New bread in the new covenant in our new priestly duty. It's not physical bread. It's not a loaf. It's sincerity and truth. This is what we are waving before God. This is what we're pursuing. This is what pleases God when he sees that we have it in our possession because he's given it to us, sincerity and truth. You see, your new covenant priestly duties are accomplished when we are brought to sincerity and truth and when we bring others to sincerity and truth because truth has a personal name and his name is Jesus, John 14, 6. You, Mars Hill, are a royal priesthood. Enjoy your priestly duties to the glory of God. That's how he sanctifies you. Through prayer, let your hearts grow rich in devotion to the Holy Spirit. That is a priestly duty. Enjoy it. Through scripture reading, renew your mind in truth's truest source, the Lord Jesus. That is a priestly duty. Enjoy it. Through your pursuit of holiness, publicly display to whom you are devoted and who devoted you as a reliable example, not only for one another, but for those who are outside of the priesthood and don't really know what this thing called Christianity is. It's a priestly duty, enjoy it. God has done a great thing in making us a royal priesthood under his son, the great high priest. Mars, let us attend to our priestly duties well for our sanctification and his glory, amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you, we thank you that you have gotten us through your love before the foundation of the world, that you brought us by your for your presence, to wash us from our sins, to close us in your son's righteousness, to ordain us, to anoint us for a specific purpose, to sanctify us to new covenant priestly duties. Father, I pray that we would be a church that recognizes our identity in your son as his priesthood. Those who have been set apart for a reason to live life on mission for you, to see sanctification in ourselves and in our neighbors, and to greatly anticipate the day when your son comes to make final his project of making all things new presently. Father, we thank you that you have gifted us with the blessings of being called your own, your royal priesthood. Grant us the presence of your Holy Spirit, his indwelling power, to pursue your will and mission. We love you. It's in your son's name that we pray these things. Amen.